Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The 2020 and 2021 hurricane seasons were both above average based on the number of named storms. The changing climate and its impact on the strength and frequency of tropical cyclones is constantly being studied. Our next guest has focused his studies on hurricanes and the impacts that the climate and climate change are having on these systems. With another active season expected in 2022, we welcome senior scientist with the Climate Service, Dr. Jim Cosson, to this week's episode of Weather Geeks. Jim, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Well, hi, Marshall. Thanks for having me here. It's, it's a real pleasure. Well, yeah, it's, a, it's an honor. It's, you're someone that I've known for some time, and we've actually even collaborated. So uh, it's really good to have you on the podcast. Uh, we have a standard question that we ask every Weather Geeks guest, and I guess it applies to you, even though I know your initial degrees were in mathematics and physics, but the question I always ask guests is, how did you become a Weather Geek? <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, you know, as you, as you said, I, I have a background in math and physics up to a, a master's degree, and what I really was interested in is an application for all of that information and knowledge that I'd accumulated over the years. And I wanted an, an application to earth science. And um, in terms of earth sciences, uh, atmospheric science and oceanography are probably the most um, technically related to fluid dynamics, which is what my specialty was. So um, at that point uh, I was, um, recruited by Colorado State University to, to come there under a fellowship. And, um, and then I uh, started working with Bill Gray. And if you, if you allow me to continue the story just a little bit longer, I started with Bill Gray in the, um, in the mid-80s. And uh, then I, I got a chance to fly into Hurricane Gilbert in 1988. Uh, we were on that flight uh, that measured the record, um, record intensity for the Atlantic that stood until Hurricane Wilma 2005. So um, my introduction to atmospheric science and then my introduction to hurricanes uh, sort of happened in that order. And we just spoke with Dr. Phil Klotzbach recently on, on the podcast, uh, another in the uh, Bill Gray tree, um, family tree here. And so uh, let me give listeners a bit of background on uh, Jim Costin. He's a currently a senior scientist with the Climate Service. Uh, he's also an honorary research fellow at the NOAA. Uh, Cooperative Institute for Meteorological Satellite Studies and an adjunct faculty member in the Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, lead author on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Sixth Assessment Report, a member emeritus of the United Nations WMO expert team on tropical cyclones and climate change. Uh, he's been awarded the NOAA Bronze Medal Award for his work with the U.S. National Hurricane Center. Uh, and as he mentioned earlier, is a BS in mathematics and physics from Clarkston University, a, ma a master's degree from Clarkston, and a PhD in atmospheric sciences from Colorado State. So he, he's one of the top experts working at the interface of tropical cyclones and climate change and someone whose work I have followed. So we're going to do a deep dive in this podcast, so be sure to stick around. 
what specific weather factors are from your lens, Jim, just in a basic contextual stage that are here? Uh, what are the specific weather factors that are impacting the strength and frequency of tropical cyclones in the Atlantic Basin? Well, I think we'd always say first and foremost, it's the um, temperature of the ocean surface. And um, also, if we want to go slightly deeper than that, it's it's how deep that warm water goes. Right? That's, And you've heard it stated in, in its somewhat simplistic fashion is that's what provides the fuel that runs the hurricanes. Um, so uh, ocean temperature is a, is a huge player in all of this. Um, but it can't be looked at in a vacuum. We have to also think about what the atmospheric state is doing above that ocean. And um, so I think that in terms of the main meteorological uh, factors that are controlling both the formation and the intensification of hurricanes, uh, certainly the vertical wind shear, how the, how the winds are changing with height in terms of speed and direction, uh, that plays perhaps uh, arguably the most important role. Uh, there's also some other factors um, such as the amount of available moisture in the atmosphere, um, particularly at the middle levels. This has much more to do with frequency or storm formation than it does with intensification. Um, and that's because a storm, once it sort of becomes an entity, it, it kind of protects itself from dry air uh, in the environments. It sort of creates its own, its own moist, um, moist column to work in. So I would, uh, and then of course there are many, many other factors, but those, those are probably the main ones that are controlling um, both frequency and intensity. Now, one of the things that uh, is often discussed and debated every hurricane season. We've had two very active ones back to back in 2020 and 2021. We exhausted the name list, in fact, and 2022 seems to be headed in that same direction if projections are correct. Hmm. What does the current literature say about climate change? We know climate change is happening. Yes, there's naturally varying climate to those that are out there saying that, but we know that the anthropogenic signal uh, is certainly in climate change today. And one of the places that increasingly it's becomingly ev evident uh, given attribution studies and so forth is in hurricanes and tropical cyclones. But there, it's, it's, there, it, it's not as clean of a story as some perhaps want to say in terms of frequency versus intensity, rainfall, different basins. So give us kind of a 101 on what we know fairly uh, conclusively about climate change and tropical cyclones. Sure. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. It's, it's not, uh, many times it's not as straightforward as, as some people might think. Uh, and frequency is a wonderful example of that um, because, uh, and as we were just discussing, the, the ocean temperature is most undoubtedly increasing uh, with global warming. And that's very simple. I mean, the, the, the greenhouse effect causes the atmosphere to warm. And, and when, the, uh, when the air near the surface warms, it equilibrates with the ocean and the ocean warms. And that, that's very, very fundamental. So there is no question that increasing greenhouse gas concentrations will warm the oceans. And that by itself, with no other, all other, all else being equal, uh, that will increase frequency and that will increase in, you know, when a storm does form, how strong it can get. Um, by the way, later we'll talk about track, which is a whole different uh, kettle of fish. 
Um, but for now, we'll just stick with kind of the thermodynamic aspects of this. So the um, <clears throat> the effects that um, that the warming ocean has, again, if nothing else changes, would be to increase frequency or chances of formation, if you like. Uh, and it will, once a storm does form, it will allow it to become more intense. It also, it apparently allows it to become intense more quickly. So intensification rates are affected. But the all else equal, that's, that's the gotcha in all of this, because all, all else is not equal. And this gets into one of the most uh, interesting nuances of what we're doing here. And that is that the mechanism that causes the warming of the ocean um, is going to have an effect on the atmosphere as well. And greenhouse gases, which are fairly well mixed, right? They're, and what, what we mean by that, they have a long lifetime, they enter the atmosphere, and they stick around, they, over time, they get pretty well mixed. And that, that's why we can go to a single point in Hawaii and measure um, carbon dioxide concentrations and know that that's a pretty good idea of what's happening globally, right? We can just get it from one point. They're well mixed gases. So the, the upshot of that is that these, uh, when you warm uniformly like that, or it, uh, there are patterns of warming, we know that, but generally uniformly, it's not a regional effect. Um, then that affects the atmosphere in a way that actually inhibits formation. And this is caused by a general drying um, through a general subsidence in the middle levels. And the, uh, the formation is very, very sensitive to that. And the, the reason for that is that how do we get a, a storm to form? Well, we start with thunderstorms, right? And so we... We have, we have to first have thunderstorms. And in middle latitudes, we know what a cap is, right? An inversion uh, that'll keep thunderstorms from developing vertically very much. And so yes. we have the same sort of thing in the tropics where the, the thunderstorms have trouble getting started. If they do get started and they start to develop vertically and there's dry air in the middle levels, they tend to entrain that dry air. They tend to die off. So the key here is that they don't persist. And that's fundamental because you need to have persistent thunderstorms because they have to be there long enough for the rotation of the earth to start to affect them. They have to start to develop spin. Once they develop spin, then they become what we might call containment vessels that sort of protect themselves through it. You know, the um, technical aspects of this are inertial stability, a, a resistance to air moving inwards and outwards toward the hurricane. So the dry air that's outside of these thunderstorms has trouble getting in and killing off the convection. So we allow these to persist long enough to develop spin. Then they start to protect themselves. Then they can become tropical storms or, or actually depressions first and then storms and then ultimately hurricanes. So if you, if global warming has a tendency to create a sort of a capping inversion of sorts and a dry layer of air in the middle levels, then it, it inhibits the chances of getting persistent convection and that inhibits formation. Yes. So that's kind of interesting. So the formation that ties into the discussions about 
sort of this question that I often get, and I'm sure you get it too. Will we have more hurricanes or less hurricanes or will they be stronger? And, you know, the literature that I've seen from the GFDL website and from IPCC and NCA suggests that we might actually, for the reasons that you just explained, not necessarily have more of them, but on average, when we do, they may be stronger. And so that certainly aligns with some of the discussion that you just laid out in your sort of excellent uh, hurricane geek out, which we love on this podcast. Now you've done research over the years that I followed very closely that in addition to this idea of frequency versus intensity, some of your research has suggested that storms as they make are approaching land may be slowing down or stalling. And I think we've seen evidence of that with things like Hurricane Harvey and Dorian and uh, perhaps even Florence in the Carolinas. Now, by the way, I want to mention that we're being hurricane-centric here, the Atlantic Basin and the East Pacific. Keep in mind uh, that these storms are all the same around the world, even though they're called different things, cyclones and typhoons. But this discussion day, for, or for the purposes of this podcast, we're being fairly uh, Atlantic-centric. And there are some basin-to-basin differences. But talk about this research that you've done, Jim, that suggests that these storms may be slowing down. Yeah, that that's a, a perhaps a more important signal in some ways, um, and I don't I don't think it'd be hard to convince people that if if you do have a hurricane come your way, you'd kind of like it to move through as quickly as possible. Uh, the longer they stick around, the, the worse things get. In particular, you'll you'll get a lot more rain, of course, right? If they stall, uh, Harvey was a textbook example of that. You also get a lot more damage because the the damage to structures by the wind is not just a function of how strong the wind is, but is also a function of the duration at which the wind blows on it. And, and perhaps even more so. <clears throat> so um, you want these things to get out of your neighborhood. And what we found is that, and, and this is somewhat of a global signal, but it's it's um, the data tend to be better in the Atlantic. And, and that's one of the reasons why much of the work gets a, a kind of an Atlantic-centric bend to it. But, um, but what we're finding is that these storms are slowing down in their forward motion over time. And this is um, very, um, <clears throat> um, very clear over land, which is really where it matters, right? The storms that are over the ocean uh, certainly create um, coastal uh, problems and maritime problems, but um, the ones over land are the ones that really do the damage and, and, and cause uh, have loss of life associated with them. So uh, we're finding that the storms uh, moving over the continental U.S. over the last 120 years have slowed down quite a bit uh, on average. That doesn't mean every storm is slower, of course. That's always a key to remember. But on average, they are slowing down. And um, when they slow down, they're uh, much more likely to stall, right? That's not too hard to imagine either. If you have a storm barreling along at 25 miles per hour or 30 miles per hour or more, um, it, it is unlikely to suddenly stop, right? It's in, it's in, a, it's in a, a steering flow that's strong. It's just gonna keep plowing along. If it's already moving very, very slowly, it's, it's much more likely to stall. Um, and change direction, as we saw with Harvey, it actually unfortunately reversed and went back over the same area again after already wiping it out the first time. So th- this is a, a this is a very troubling uh, signal that we're finding, and um, the 
in terms of the physical mechanisms that may be driving this, <clears throat> uh, in the most fundamental sense, we know that the um, poles are um, warming faster than the uh, lower latitudes are. And we also know that the temperature difference between lower latitudes and higher latitudes are what drives the wind, right? Through temperature differences, which cause pressure differences and which cause the wind to blow. So the idea of warming a cold area, the Arctic and Antarctic, uh, disproportionately to the lower latitudes, what that does is reduces that temperature difference, which reduces the pressure difference, which reduces the steering, the strength of the steering flow. So um, if this is indeed true, and, and it does seem to be, then this is probably why we're seeing the slowdown over the continental US, which is mostly sitting in um, either um, a sort of a transition between the easterly trades and the mid-latitude westerlies, or it's firmly in the mid-latitude westerlies. So we think that that's probably the reason for what we're seeing. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with my colleague, Dr. Jim Kossin, about changing climate in the tropics and what are the implications for things like hurricanes and typhoons and so forth, although we're being fairly hurricane-centric in this discussion today. Now, you mentioned something, Jim, early on in the last segment about rainfall and these storms stalling or slowing down and Harvey and and uh, France, I'm sorry, Florence were significant flood events. And then we, of course, had Dorian that sat over the Bahamas and uh, brought rain and wind. You and I were actually co-authors on a, on a paper recently that talked about better ways of communicating or conveying the rainfall threat in these tropical systems, particularly hurricanes. Just saw an example of it in Miami um, prior to us taping this with the first storm of the season, named storm of the season, Alex really didn't even have a name. It was moving over South Florida. It was a potential tropical cyclone that eventually became Alex as it moved into the Atlantic. But I was seeing 10 to 13 inches of rainfall, cars in the stall in the street in Miami. Uh, what are your thoughts about how we convey the rainfall hazard? I know the wind gets a lot of attention as sort of the more telegenic, but what are your thoughts on how we convey the rainfall threat and, and are storms getting warm, wetter in a climate-changed environment? 
Yeah, great question. Um, well, certainly, and we understand this very well, is that wind certainly causes damage and fatalities, but nowhere near as much as water. And of course, the water takes on two forms. One is the salt water, which would be storm surge. And that that's generally, you know, con constrained to the coast and nearby, near the coast. The storm surge is, is a very localized thing along a coastal um, coastal segment. But freshwater, freshwater flooding from rainfall, that's, that's really where we start to get into huge loss of life. There's so many reasons for that. Um, uh, one of them, just off the top of my head, is that uh, coastal evacuations are common, right? Storm surge is coming, evacuate the coast. But inland, inland evacuations, not really. And if you find yourself into, in, a, in an area with topography, um, then you start getting all of these compound or secondary hazards such as mudslides and uh, river flooding and things like that. So um, you could lose um, many, many lives very, very quickly with just one, one event like that. Just, just one, um, one severe rainfall, inland rainfall event. So that's one of the things that we have to um, be very, very much aware of is that the freshwater flooding is poses the greatest threat to life and property of all the aspects of these storms. And that's pretty well documented. Um, and so one might ask, well, why are we, why are we focusing only on wind? And, and I, I think that there's a general push toward not doing that quite as much. Uh, I think that, um, you know, the idea here is to communicate to people that they need to get out. And however we do that is probably OK. But um, but the inland the inland hazard that that's problematic um, because it's it's a little bit harder to know uh, what's going to happen. So the um, you've, you've got that that situation already, re regardless of climate change, that um, inland freshwater flooding poses enormous hazard. Uh, then you, on top of that, you'll have what we just discussed, which is the potential for these storms to slow down, dropping more rain or stall, dropping way more rain. Um, but then we also have, and I think you might have alluded to it, um, the idea that the rain rate in these uh, storms is increasing. And that, that's a little bit easier to understand in that um, very, very straightforward thermodynamic relationship between how much water vapor air can hold and the temperature of that air. And I think, you know, the idea of having really hot, humid days um, makes perfect sense. And weather geeks obviously get this very well. So we are warming the atmosphere and we know that the amount of water vapor that the atmosphere can hold increases roughly 7% per degree Celsius of warming. So that, that's just fundamental physics. There's no getting around that sort of like if water freezes at, at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. So we have a kind of a double whammy here in terms of freshwater flooding. One is that the uh, storms are the rain rate, the rate at which water is falling out of them is increasing. And then also the, the speed of translation, how quickly they move from one point to another is slowing. And I always use the analogy of if you put a shower head on the end of a garden hose, when you turn the, the faucet on the garden hose, that's controlling the rate. When you walk then with, the, with this um, shower head in your hand, the amount of rain falling on the ground is a function also of how fast you're walking. You stop, 
and it'll flood below you. So that's, um, I think that that's, that's one of the things that we really, really need to be aware of um, and, and start to pay attention to it. And I think that that paper that you and I were involved in is, is very timely in that respect because it is dealing with how best to convey the dangers of freshwater flooding uh, relative to what people's experiences are. Um, and so I think that that's an excellent step in the right direction for uh, warning people of this hazard that's, that has very little to do with the actual hurricane winds themselves. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we are back for the last segment of the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm speaking with Jim Cosson. And Jim, you know, we've had Hurricane Michael in recent years, Harvey, Dorian, Ida, Laura, Sally. I just, you know, we've had two very active seasons. Uh, many people are saying it's a new normal. Uh, the IPCC report, which you've been very active in, has said some things about the reporting as well. I just I browsed before we came on the podcast uh, your website, and I I saw a paper that was either in in preparation or in review on projecting hurricane activity in the U.S. in the year 2030s. Very curious about what you found in that paper. Oh, right, that was. Um, um... Well, I think one thing that we want to make sure that we cover, and it's definitely directly related to your question, is um, the the unusual circumstances in the Atlantic. Uh, and you, and as you also mentioned, you know there these these typhoons and or tropical cyclones in a generic naming convention uh, all around the world are being affected in very similar ways. A lot of these things that we've been talking about frequency, intensity, intensification rate, track changes, all of that is um, uh, you can document, you can find, find evidence for this everywhere. But the, um, <clears throat> the Atlantic is a very unusual basin for many reasons. Uh, and one of the things that has been driving hurricane activity there, and the evidence is mounting very quickly that this is a major factor in what we're, what we've been experiencing. Uh, is the fact that the air the, in this regional area has become cleaner since the Clean Air Act and amendments of the 70s. Uh, whereas um, the uh, back in the 70s, when <laughs> things were really bad, right, you couldn't see across the Hudson River from New York to New Jersey, and uh, the Cuyahoga River was on fire, and we all just finally said, you know, this is crazy, we're, we're destroying our planet. And we implemented these um, Clean Air Act and Clean Air and Water Acts. 
And since then, the air has become progressively cleaner, in particular, um, uh, pollution aerosols, sulfates from um, industry, things like that, uh, have decreased America, uh, the United States and Europe, both decreasing it. And what that's done is it's cleaned the air up over land, but also over the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, those aerosols have a kind of a dimming effect. They block sunlight from reaching the ocean. So they have a cooling effect. And so what we've been doing is we've been, while we've been warming the atmosphere, we've also been polluting it and offsetting that warming. And then when we started cleaning up the air, okay, now our chickens have come home to roost. And, and this is what's going on now is that we have a double, again, another double whammy. We've got warming due to greenhouse gases increasing. And we also have warming due to a decrease in aerosol pollution. And so uh, all heck is breaking loose uh, and has been since about the mid nineties. Um, we had a very, very quiet. So you don't, so you don't subscribe. I mean, there are some that just say, you know, and obviously there's the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation and mm -hmm. there are these mm -hmm. sort of long term sort of quiescent and active periods. And there are some that have tried to suggest that the activity that we've seen is more linked to that. But you argue, and I, I agree with you, but you argue that, yeah, there's that's certainly natural variability, but clearly this sort of anthrogenic greenhouse gas signal and the sort of uh, direct warming because of the cleaner air, if you will, uh, ironically, uh, you're, you're arguing that those are our first order impacts on what we're seeing. I am arguing that, yes, and, and I, I'm arguing that not just based on, on opinion, which is what I find a lot of the arguments oh, absolutely. for are, but, but on, on a, again, a, um, a, an abundance and a, a constant creation of evidence to support it. I think that the, um, the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation, uh, I think it was Carrie Emanuel that said, well, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not multi-decadal and it's not an oscillation. <laughs> And I, and I think that that's true. I, I, I think that there is certainly natural variability. Um, I don't think that it, it necessarily beats on a regular cycle. Um, but, and I do think that that is always going to be contributing to what we see in the Atlantic. But as you said, to use your words, I think that that's a second order effect um, that is at the moment um, perhaps uh, um, compounding rather than offsetting what we're finding from these other more external or, or human caused effects. Uh, whether now, whether that starts to swing back into what people would call a cooler phase, that certainly is possible, but I don't think that it's going to return us to anything like what we saw in the seventies and eighties in terms of quiescence. Absolutely. Now, Jim, you mentioned something. We're, we're running out of time, but you mentioned something about track earlier, and you said, I want to talk about that a bit later in the podcast. Um, I, I don't know if you were alluding to the more poleward shifting in tracks or the poleward shift in the intensity of storms, mm -hmm. but I wanted to give you an opportunity to sort of expand on what you mentioned about wanting to say about track. Sure. Yeah. Well, we covered a large part of it when we talked about how they're slowing down. So that would be an effect on track. Right. And, and I think one of the things to think about is that the, 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 the local thermodynamics is what drives whether a storm forms and how strong it gets. Right. That's a, you know, sort of, we can just look locally and say, okay, what kind of an environment do we have here? What's the water temperature? What's the wind shear blah, et cetera. 
Now we get into track, which is what pushes these things around, right? Kind of almost, but not quite like corpse in a stream. So we have to think about what's affecting the larger synoptic scale flow, which is a whole nother question, right? This is a, there's a lot of variability, a lot of random variability, a lot of chaoticness to synoptic scale flows and, and, you know, and, and more uh, localized flows. So um, this gets very, very complex, very, very quickly. Um, but we are finding that, um, that the storms are reaching their peak intensity at higher and higher latitudes. And, and I think that you, one could argue that you, we can keep talking about changes in frequency and we could talk about changes in intensity. But if these storms start to move away from where you live, your risk goes down. And so the idea of where these storms are going is hugely important, right? We could have we could have nothing but category seven storms for an entire year, but if they all stay out in the ocean, then um, there isn't a whole lot of risk going on there. So um, I think that these poleward shifts are something that we need to look at very, very carefully. You know, so if there's a, a, a reduction of risk in the Philippines, but an increase in risk along the uh, east coast of China or along Japan, these are um, really, really going to affect the risk landscape, um, perhaps even more so than changes in intensity. So I think that track in general needs to be thought of, and it's challenging again because there's so much random variability to it. And so f digging a signal out of all that noise uh, is, is a little bit more challenging and a little bit harder to model uh, than, than questions about how greenhouse gas warming affects intensity, for example. And, and, and as we found in the, our National Academies report, which I co-authored, I mean, our models are climate models are just getting to the point where we can represent explicitly these tropical systems. And that, that needs to be a part of our, our, our analysis and studies. Uh, one last question before we get out of here, Jim, what are your thoughts on sort of rapid intensification? That seems to be an area, at least in recent years, we've seen a lot of storms, people going to bed to cat twos and raking up to much stronger storms in 24, 36 hours. Uh, I, I, I'm a little bit, I've been trying to scour the literature a little bit to see if there's any signal. I've seen some literature suggesting that there's certainly a fingerprint of climate change on rapid intensification. What's your best understanding of that? Yeah, and I, I, I was actually involved in a couple of those papers that address that directly. Um, the, the, there is um, observational evidence that intensification rates have increased. Uh, and there is um, good modeling evidence to suggest that um, that these increases would be very difficult to explain in terms of natural variability alone. Uh, most of those papers were led by uh, Kiran Bhatia, who was um, at GFDL and Princeton um, before um, before moving into industry. But um, there does seem to be um, a fairly substantial um, signal to these intensification rates. I think that's a little bit harder to pin down than just peak intensity, right? Which we have a very, very solid physical theory uh, that Kerry Manuel uh, brought to us in the 80s, you know, called potential intensity. And it's a little bit di more difficult to find the physical reasoning for why they would get stronger faster. Uh, one, one thing, of course, is that if you increase how strong they can get, you're basically giving them more headroom. You know, it's like spinal taps amplifier. It goes to 11. 
And so once you give them more headroom, then they can, they can intensify more rapidly because they have more space to do so. Um, but this, this is an important part, as you, as you said, and it's been happening a lot lately. And uh, that's something that I think we also need to understand better. And hopefully they'll, there'll be more, more modeling studies on this to figure out exactly what's going on. Well, I, I, I personally could sit here and talk to Jim all day long, but the Weather Channel tells me I've got a time limit on these podcasts, so I have to end it here. Amazing discussion. Uh, and by the way, as I mentioned to you off, off the mic, um, one of our executive production team, Dr. Matt Sikowski, uh, University of Wisconsin alum, uh, sends along his best regards to Jim. I know they're colleagues. And Dr. Sikowski, again, one of the brainchilds of Weather Geeks, the TV show and podcast, is a hurricane expert himself and some really important work on eyewall replacement cycles, for example. That's, but Jim, that, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Hey, well, Matt, of course, was my PhD student. So uh, I'm very, very no, honored. I, 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 yeah, he, I, didn't, I didn't know that. No, no wonder he's sitting. I, I thought you just, I, I, I think that I had forgotten that he actually was your student. Yeah, it was the, it was a wonderful time. I, I miss Matt. <laughs> we all miss Matt. Yeah, no, Matt, Matt's amazing here. So I definitely wanted to take a t- take time to shout out. And I, you may Thanks. not have known how important his role was in the Weather Geeks television show that we did for several years. And now the podcast, he's one of the executive production team and doing really great things there at the Weather Channel still. But Jim, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Oh, it was really my pleasure, Marshall. And, and um, <laughs> invite me back anytime. This is, there's no, oh, nothing I like more than just sitting around and talking about hurricanes and climate change. I could go for Oh, me too. We'll take you up on that. But before we get out of here, it's time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Christian Bridges. Christian is a broadcast meteorologist who loves winter storms. He's known since he was eight years old that he wanted to be a meteorologist. That's awesome, Christian. Now, if you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Again, thank Jim Cosson for joining us. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time.